My guest today has been called Twitter's resident gynecologist, the internet's OBGYN. She is an OBGYN and a pain medicine physician. She is Gwyneth Paltrow's nemesis, a fierce advocate for women's health, and has devoted her professional life to caring for women. She also writes about sex, science, and social media, and is the author of The Vagina Bible, The Vulva and the Vagina, Separating the Myth from the Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Jen Gunter. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Thank you for having me. Now, two years ago, on your website, you wrote, we need a vagina and a vulva Bible, so I'm writing one. Why were you so adamant that we needed one? Well, I have spent a lot of time debunking myths online and writing about women's health, and I kind of felt that I I must have covered everything at this point. Uh, and then I had a day in the office where I saw about five women back to back where each one had a different myth or misconception about her body. And maybe she'd been told it by her mom or her sister or a friend, read it in a magazine, maybe a man had told her, or even a doctor. And when I explained to her you know, what was really going on and what she should actually know, each one of them said, how did I not know that? And I, I heard that over and over again. How did I not know that? And I thought, how did they not know that? Mm -hmm. And then I thought, you know what? Women need a textbook, and I'm going to write one. And, well, how do they not know that? Well, I think that, first of all, there's this This culture. is something that's covered in the book. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, there's a culture of shame about genitals and specifically about women's reproductive tracts. And so when you can't say words, if you can't say vagina and vulva, then the assumption is that that's dirty. And so where do you go to get information about things that are dirty? Uh, you go to clandestine places. You go to places that aren't medical, that aren't vetted. And even sort of doctors perpetuate dogma and also, too, trusted resources are incorrect. I mean, the, the trusted book, Our Bodies, Ourselves, is tells women to put yogurt and garlic in their vagina. So, you know, so it comes from all different places. I love a quote that I, that I identified here from you. It says, I wish everyone could talk about the genital tract in the same way we talk about an elbow or the foot. It's just a body part. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, so if you if you can't talk about something, if you can't say what hurts or what you want, like how how can you possibly be empowered? And so it really opens the arena to a lot of predators. And that's what we see with the wellness industry. So wellness is willing to say these words and have these conversations. The problem is, is the information they're giving is, you know, incorrect. And often dangerous. Yes, often dangerous. And and how is it in an era where Dr. Google is probably more consulted than the your your family doctor, your regular doctor, uh, how do we parse through what is real, what isn't, what we should pay attention to and what we should ignore? Well, you know, I partly blame medical professional societies because they were very behind the ball, behind the eight ball about getting doctors online and getting online information. And, you know, I think many of us know that whoever's there first is the person who, you know, mm -hmm. becomes the trusted resource. And a lot of people didn't take online information seriously, which was absolutely incorrect. I mean, there was a time in medicine where we thought it would be ridiculous to give healthcare by telephone, and yet we have amazing <laughs> telephone yeah. triage protocols, right? So you have to adapt. And I think that especially as far as the genital tract is concerned, again, medicine is pretty puritanical. So they, you know, a lot of doctors aren't comfortable talking about sex or they think talking about sex in public is unbecoming to a professional, mm -hmm. right? So it's okay for me to go out and talk about an elbow, but when you start talking about the vulva or vagina, well, you know, that's something people have sex with. I'm like, well, 
sure, but that's my job as well. So, you know, so I think that medicine has to has to realize they have to meet, meet people where they are. They, medicine has to shake off its sort of patriarchal sort of, and puritanical background and, uh, and step up and do better. Would you say that that is what part of the books, and I love this word, vagenda is? Yeah, uh, yes. My vagenda is accurate, <laughs> empowering information. Because you can't be an empowered patient with inaccurate information. In medicine, we have this really important concept called informed consent. So if you want to have surgery, you come to see me. I explain the risks and I explain the benefits. And I hopefully do that without bias. So then you can make a decision. Do you want to have that surgery? Yes or no. Sometimes the decisions are easier and sometimes they're harder. Mm -hmm. But if I don't give you correct information or I don't disclose you my bias, then you didn't get to make an informed consent. You made uninformed consent. The Vagina Bible is coming out at a time when women's reproductive health in the U.S. is a political issue, a huge political issue. Um, But the book is more clinical than political. What was uh, your thinking in in terms of creating that approach for the book? Well, at the core, I wanted women to have a textbook. So Mm -hmm. it is more clinical. But you can't separate the clinical from the history of medicine or the history of maltreatment of women or from laws or about public shaming. So that was a necessary part of the story. I wanted people to understand, especially in the early chapters, because I figured that people who don't have vaginas might not read the whole book. Uh, but but people who don't have vaginas would certainly probably read the first few chapters. They might pick up their partner's book uh, or, or buy one out of curiosity. And... I wanted them to see all the pressures that women are under, all the junk that's sold to us, all the ways in which we have to jump through hoops to try to just get basic care for our body parts. So you've been writing about women's health for a long time. Uh, There is a broad awareness around policies, uh, around reproductive health, you know, uh, how they've been created, which is generally speaking uh, by men uh, policing women's bodies. What do you think it will take for that to change? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we still live in a system where men hold the power and women are largely excluded from it. So I think that it's only going to change when we have equal representation in politics. You know, even in medicine, for example, in OBGYN, many more than 50% of new trainees are women, yet the people who hold the positions of power, the people that have presidential offices, the people who are hospital administrators, the people that make all the rules, they are largely men. And I think that while there definitely are wonderful allies and there's good men, we need to have equal representation. And so I get asked this question a lot when I'm out speaking. And, you know, often it's some young girl standing up, a teenager asking me, you know, you know, how can we do better? And I'm like, you need to go into politics. You need to go into (laughs) politics. We need more women in politics. Absolutely. Do you think that there are cultural forces behind this or is it just the way it's always been and it's been a, a slow change? Well, I think that we have, I I mean, I think that it's been this way for so long and, you know, making substantial social change is difficult, Mm -hmm. getting people to change their minds. And so there's that. But I do think we also have this new force of wellness, which is something that we didn't have before, which is very predatory and very patriarchal. So wellness uses a lot of the terms of the patriarchy, wellness, pure, good. So we're we're talking about uh, are we talking about holistic medicine now? No, we're, we're talking about... Well, so what, what exactly do you mean by wellness? Well, so that's a really important point. So holistic medicine just means taking care of the whole patient. Right. That's all that means. But it's been branded to mean something else by people who are selling you junk. 
Right. So when I say wellness, I mean the wellness industrial complex. I mean people selling you supplements, people telling you that you should follow this diet or that diet, mm -hmm. people who you know want you to buy expensive yoga mats or whatever, whatever accoutrement that you need to right. stay healthy, uh, which of course is always more than like five dollars. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of the wellness industrial complex. And so what they do is they prey largely on women. That's largely their customer base. They use the language of the patriarchy, like wellness pure, natural. And, you know, they provide women with misinformation and misinforming women about their bodies is misogyny. It's not feminism. And then why do we trust it? I mean, why why does this wellness industry, uh, and, and I mean, obviously there's money, right? So right. That, that's why they do it. But, but why do people buy in? So, I mean, wellness has a lot of money because it's a $4 trillion a year business. So they have incredible advertising. But they do something very interesting. They use what are called God words. So in rhetoric, you know, there are words that are called God words. And what we do is we all assign positive value to those things. So a God word might be wellness or it might be life or it might be purity. It could be agency. And these are words that are, are geared to make us feel good, to make us feel like we're doing something good for ourselves. Right. There, and we give everything associated with those words the benefit of mm. the doubt. So if a supplement is designed to give you wellness and help with your agency, you're more likely to think that that's a good thing for you. Right. So basically they're using propaganda and rhetoric, whether they're doing it intentionally or not, really very, very effectively. And you talk about supplements, you talk about that kind of thing. Are there any like particularly egregious uh, products out there that we should be avoiding? Well, I think anything that's untested, untested is agreed mm -hmm. just because we don't know what we don't know. I mean, the one that irks me right now is the sort of the cannabis wellness industry, you know, and I know a lot of people listening, you know, like their cannabis. Oh, and, the text board's lighting up yeah, right now. Exactly. As you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but here's the deal. The idea that exposing yourself <clears throat> daily to, you know, CBD or CBD and THC, you know, in bath soaks and in vaginal products and other things, the idea that that would have a net benefit result without any studies is really, to me, fantastical. And I always tell people, so take everything that you think about the cannabis industry and wellness. And what if it was a pharmaceutical company telling you the same thing? <laughs> if a pharmaceutical company told you, oh, this bath soak would help you with your muscles, this this um, balm to rub on your knee would help with this, you'd be like, what? You want me to give you money for this untested product? So that's what I would want people to think about. Every single thing from wellness, you should think in your mind, how would I feel if this was from Big Pharma? I think... It, absolutely. I, I think that some of those things are probably fairly benign. They're not doing you any harm, but there are things that will how do, do you, know you that? harm. Well, you know, how do we get they haven't been tested? They haven't That's been right. tested. How do you know that? Yeah. We all thought thalidomide was fine. Right. Right. I mean, there's lots of things that we think are fine until we find out that they're not. And, you know, the, the fascinating thing for me about cannabis, because, you know, I, I've done a lot of research in this area for vaginal health, is that, you know, a lot of people promote it for sex, but the, the limited data that we have actually shows that your natural endocannabinoids go down when you're sexually stimulated. So giving yourself more doesn't seem like it would be the right thing to do. Maybe there's another mechanism. Maybe it's just making you more relaxed. Maybe it's all in your head. But don't you think that you should know that answer? I mean, that's what medicine wants. And people who are selling you product, they don't want answers. They just want to make sale. When I go to the doctor... I assume that she is going to tell me the things that I need to hear and 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 give me the right information. That's why I go to her. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
I knock wood. So far, it's working out well. <laughs> but it's not in all cases. I'm right. su- uh, I'm supposing uh, with everyone, nothing's a hundred percent. But you know, how how is it that we're getting misinformation from professional people, people that have studied for years in their fields? Well, so I think first of all, you know, staying up to date on every single thing can be a challenge, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think that. It's less – certainly there are some doctors who simply do not know very specific things, and, and that's a problem. Just like, you know what, I'm sure there are pilots that don't know things that they mm-hmm. should know, and there are firefighters who don't know things. That, so, yeah. so there are people who have deficits within their profession. But I think the bigger issue in medicine is the communication problem. So the doctor has the piece of knowledge, and for some reason, they're unable to get that knowledge to the patient. Whether the patient, um, you know, has had a previous bad experience with that physician or with other physicians, or the physician's just not a great communicator. But that's something that I hear over and over again. You know, I'm a subspecialist, uh, so that means that I see women with vulvar and vaginal problems who no one else has been able to fix, right? So mm-hmm. maybe they've been they've seen 10 other doctors or they've suffered for 10 years. And half the time, what I do is I, and they, and they disbelieve what their previous physician had told them. And half the time, I give them the exact same advice, but I say it in a way that they can hear it. Right. And so there's this huge communication gulf. And I think that some of it's time. I'm lucky enough that I'm in a situation where I get an hour with a new patient. So I can invest mm-hmm. in the end, right? If you invest in the beginning, you invest in the outcome. So I can invest in the patient and the patient can feel heard. People can't listen to you if they don't feel heard. They have to feel heard. And I think medicine does a bad job of that. And so I would say that I think a large percentage of the misinformation that comes from physicians is either a time pressure thing or not feeling heard or a miscommunication problem. Now, the net result is the same, and they all need to be fixed. But I think if you want to fix a problem, you actually have to understand the cause of it. I have a new doctor after having gone to the same doctor for as long as I can remember, uh-huh. and, and he retired. And now I go to uh, a new doctor. Uh, she is young. She is a communicator uh, par excellence. I am so happy to be going to someone who speaks to me in a way that I can understand. When I go in and say, I don't know, I've got a rash. What does it mean? And she actually can tell me in a way that I understand. And I will tell you, I loved my old doctor, went to him for many, mm-hmm. many years, but he was old school. He right. was an old, you know, an old school doctor. I love my new doctor. And, you know, I think it's really important. I love that. Um, I, I think it's a Maya Angela quote where she says, uh, where she said that, um, you know, people won't remember your words, um, but they'll remember, I mean, I'm paraphrasing mm-hmm. her. They won't remember your actual words, but they'll remember how y- they made you feel. Right. And so I think that's really important. Did you feel heard? Did you feel that your question was answered? Because your question, you know, when you come in with a rash, mm-hmm. you know, you're you're worried about one thing. Your doctor may be worried about something completely right. different. Um, she's got to satisfy what she's worried about to make sure that's not the problem, but also satisfy what you're worried about. Yeah, when you, you know? walk out of that right. door, you have to feel looked right. after. Like yeah. you might be worried that that rash is cancer, and there's no way, for example, perhaps that particular rash could ever be cancer. Mm-hmm. But if she doesn't acknowledge that worry of yours and answer it, you can't hear whatever else she's going to tell you about that rash. Now, you talk about how women are conditioned to think that their vaginas are abnormal, saying uh, there's a lot of money in vaginal shame. And you argue that it's related to the marketing of procedures like vaginal rejuvenation, 
that kind of thing. And I remember the first time that I saw advertisements for that in the newspaper. I was working in Los Angeles and I'm just, Mm -hmm. you know, ripping through the newspaper and I started to see these ads and I had never heard of such a thing. Uh, But apparently it is popular. It's something that, that, that happens. Can you perhaps explain what that is and then uh, why it is connected to vaginal shame? Yeah. So it's fascinating because, you know, the this whole industry has really sprouted up in the last 10 to 15 years. I've been looking after women with vulva problems for almost 30 years, and I have not had the requests I've had about about vulvas looking abnormal and needing to be fixed. Not vulvas that look completely within the spectrum of normal needing mm-hmm. to be fixed. This all started 10 years ago. And that's when the marketing for the plastic surgery procedure started. And that has to have the huge impact. And, you know, this whole idea that um, that your women are basically being told now that if their labia majora are longer than their labia minora, their labia minora are longer than their labia majora, that there's something wrong with them. And that's how 50% of women are built. Mm. And the thing that's particularly predatory and egregious about it is your labia minora are sexually responsive. They engorge, they have specialized nerve endings, they have erectile tissue. This is part of sexual enjoyment. And plastic surgeons primarily, there are some gynecologists who do the procedure, but it primarily comes from plastic surgeons, are basically telling women that their organ of sexual response should be smaller. And I want to know how many of these surgeons do procedures on men to make their penises smaller to look better. Right, they don't. That procedure doesn't mm-hmm. exist, and it's—I mean—it's completely predatory. And it's—I hear women who come in. And the the term they use now is something called an Audi vagina. Basically, if you can see your labia minora, there's something wrong with you. They, the women get told horrible things by their partners. They feel shamed about it. I mean, you know, women worry that they don't look sleek in yoga pants. I'm like, nobody worries if men look sleek in their <laughs> pants. Like, why? What is wrong with this? Like, buy better fitting clothes. You know, I always say, like, you know, there are many men who um, have a fashion trend where their pants hang low, and you can see their gluteal cleft. That's the medical term for it. <laughs> nobody suggests men. Should get their gluteal clefts sewn up. Oh, I, I would, I would, I would be on that. <laughs> okay. I would be on that boat. But I, I get what you're saying. But you know, so yeah. there's no industry built about fixing men's genitals in that way. And so I think that people who offer it for pure cosmetics are predatory. You know, there, of course, there are women who have vaginal deliveries. And something traumatic happens, and one side looks completely different from the other. And they say, hey, I kind of look like I looked before in the ballpark. Mm. That's different. We're seeing young women, women who've never been sexually active, women who's, who are worried how they look in their yoga pants. And I'm like, you know what? Just who cares? Embrace your labial cleavage. Uh, I want to talk, though, uh, about the vulva and the vagina. It's pretty simple as as I see it. As I sit here, and I'll give you my definition, and then you tell me how wrong I am about okay. this. Uh, the vulva is anything on the outside that the that the underwear touches, and the vagina is the the, the inner workings. That's correct. That, yep. that seems to me to be it. Why don't people? What, what's what's complicated? Well, so for years we haven't been able to say either of these words in public. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think. I mean. When the vagina monologues came out, yeah, when was that in the 80s? And banned I mean, in places. Yeah, it was banned. Mm-hmm. It was revolutionary to say the word vagina. And it was 1980, like in the 1980s, like, come on. Oh, my God, like the word vagina. And so, you know, 
people weren't allowed to say it on television shows, on news, on, you know, in print. And, you know, when you can't say a word, then it means it's shameful. And then you can't really talk about it. And then eventually at some point, I guess the the public mores loosened a little bit and the word vagina sort of became okay, but no one mentioned vulva. And so it just became vagina and that sort of became the, um, the cultural term for everything uh, as opposed to medically where the right. vulva is exactly what you said. The part on the outside, the vagina is the inside and where the two overlap is called the vestibule. How, how kind of religious sounding there's something about that. Um, the, the clitoris you talk about in the mm-hmm. book, and you say that it's the only organ in the human body that exists only for pleasure. That's correct. Mm-hmm. That is correct. I always say men pee through that thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, yeah, it is. And I think that when we don't talk about it, we really diminish it. And, you know, it's a super important conversation because many young women are very uneducated about their body. They don't learn about sex in school. They're told not to talk about sex at home. Only bad girls talk about mm-hmm. sex. And so if they end up partnering with a man and the first time they have sex is with a younger heterosexual man, you know, he's the least reliable source on the anatomy. And yet that's where she's getting her information about how to have sex. You know, we see a lot less of these questions and concerns and body image issues from women who partner with women because they're partnering with someone who understands the parts and knows how it works. I I don't know what happens in schools today, but I know that my health class, and I use that in quotes, which was essentially sex education, but it was called health class, uh, was taught by my gym teacher who kept his eyes down reading from a textbook, (laughs) you know, barely able to say the words that, you know, that were written on the page in front of him. And I'm not sure that it was overly helpful. He was a nice man, but I'm not sure that it was overly helpful to anybody in that class. Uh, Are we failing children by not teaching them uh, at a young age. I mean, this is a controversial mm-hmm. subject because there's been so much talk about this right. in Ontario exactly. uh, specifically. Uh, but are we failing kids? Yeah, I mean, because parents aren't doing the job. Mm-hmm. And parents, it's hard. I mean, we don't ask parents to teach their kids math. So why should we ask them to teach, you know, um, everything else? So I think that um, it's super important to have accurate sex education. And the problem is, is that most schools just focus on pregnancy prevention, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, as if, you know, getting pregnant could be the worst thing possible that could happen to somebody. And, you know, while obviously I'm not, I'm not, I want people to all have planned pregnancies. What happens is, you know, unplanned pregnancies almost always happen from, you know, in in younger people because of sexual, um, uh, you know, sexual experimentation or because of lack of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So we actually have the answer to the problem, (laughs) right? The answer isn't to tell kids, ooh, you shouldn't know anything about sex. They already hear that it's good. Why not teach them what good sex is? So then they won't have bad sex, right? Like if if you knew what the best tasting cake was and then someone offered you a terrible cake you'd be like well why would I have that when I could have that I'm going to wait for that really good cake so I think that it's super important to give actual act accurate factual information and my kids had incredible sex ed in California uh, in grade seven. It was so amazing. They even had to label all the parts of the clitoris. They talked about consent. They talked about pleasure. And it was done in such a respectful way, you know, that the first day the the sex educator, so it was a proper sex educator, mm-hmm. not just foisted off on some poor phys ed teacher, right? Um, you know, the first thing she said was she wanted to gauge in the room what is the comfort level of talking about sex in your home. So she could, you know, figure out where she were. And of course, one of my sons puts his hand up and goes, well, my mom wrote about her vagina for the New York Times. So she's like, well, I guess you guys will be more comfortable. (laughs) 
one of the issues that we've had in Ontario with this is parents' reaction to this. And sort of culturally, there was pushback. And, and uh, you know, I think a lot of parents were, were uh, afraid that there was like an agenda behind this. What would you say to them? Well, I would say that the agenda is education. And the more kids are educated about sex is absolutely has no – what are you afraid of with that education? Mm. I would actually say, you know – what is your fear? And I think the fear is generally that the information is going to lead children to be sexually active right. at an early age. And it doesn't. It doesn't. What leads children to be more sexually active is lack of knowledge. So, you know, so their fears are really unfounded. Now, whether they can hear that is another story. I mean, there's parents who are afraid of vaccines. They're incorrect. We can tell them that they're incorrect and it's hard for them to hear that. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's really important to to actually study what people's fears are because they might be different. Someone from a religious background might have a different fear than someone who had a sister who had a teen pregnancy or something, right? So I think it's important to understand where those fears are coming from, but they are completely unfounded. Quality sex education is is something that governments should invest in. It's a public service. It's it's more important than keeping the roads running. I mean, this is something that governments should do because we are we all benefit when we have lower rates of sexually transmitted infections. I mean, in Canada, you know, if you get a sexually transmitted infection, that's paid for by the government, mm -hmm. right? The testing and everything. So you think about this doesn't just make sense so people can have the kind of lives they want to have. It doesn't just make sense from a being a good person standpoint, it also makes sense economically. What a cheap way to have all these kids in a room when they're in grade seven and give them all this factual information at once to prevent other consequences. Do you think that the sex recession is real? Oh, I don't know. You know, that's You hear all, about this, right? Yeah. Young, young kids aren't having sex or younger millennials aren't having sex. Well, I mean, nobody's really established what the normal amount of sex is for people, right? Mm -hmm. So here's the deal. It's only sexual dysfunction if you're dissatisfied. Right. So if people are happy doing what they're doing, fine. That's great. I mean, I, you know, like that's literally the definition. You know, like, you know, if somebody comes in and say, well, I'm not really having much sex. Are you bothered by it? No, not really at all. I'm per perfectly happy having sex once a month. Okay. Are you perfectly happy? Some people are perfectly happy having no sex. So I think that we have this bizarre idea in our society that people should be horny all the time and want to have sex all the time. And that's some kind of, you know, that's that's the equivalent of having more money than you could possibly, you know, people want to have more money than they could possibly have. They want to have more sex than anybody could possibly handle. They want to have more chocolate. I don't know, right. you know, pick up at these things. But that's not how it is. You know, people fill out on surveys that, you know, that the most important thing in their life is sex. But the average amount of time most people spend having sex a week is about seven minutes. I think it might be less than that. I probably spend more time looking in my fridge than seven minutes. Right. I mean, I spend and more time. And certainly more time looking at your phone. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that it's there's a lot of pressure for people to say that sex is the most important thing for them in their whole life. So whether it is or not, I don't know. I mean, I'm certainly not accurate about my weight on questionnaires. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think there are truths that, that society makes it hard for people to admit. So I don't think I can answer that question, but I would... I don't think people are having significantly less sex than they ha were having. I mean, our S our ins our rates of sexually transmitted infections are going up. Mm -hmm. So and there's old ones are coming back. Yeah, gonorrhea yeah. and syphilis, especially Alberta, had a big outbreak. Um, but yeah, I mean, our rates of sexually transmitted HIV are static; they're not going down. So you know, so there's no. I don't have any objective evidence to say that the rates of sex are going down. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, for people who don't know, although I think most people probably do, a pot 
popular Academy Award-winning actor. Uh, she is the proprietor of a website called Goop, which I believe is also a magazine and and kind of part of this wellness industry that we spoke of earlier in the show. Right. And Gwyneth Paltrow has some products on this website that honestly look to me like they are uh, created by the parody website, The Onion. I look at some of the products and think people cannot possibly buy into this, and yet they do. And one of them were jade eggs that you would insert into your vagina for rejuvenation, I guess. I'm not exactly sure what the what the purpose was. Uh, it was not pleasure. Well, no, it was. It was. You were first of all. You have to recharge them with the energy of the moon. There's that important step. Yeah, it's oh. an important step. Lunar energy, right? <laughs> we're missing out on that natural resource. Clearly, uh, how does Gwyneth Paltrow know about that and nobody else? Uh, so, well, she is Iron Man's wife, isn't she? Right. Yeah. So my kids booed when she came. She came out in the movies. They're like, Bleh. so they're my they're my greatest defenders. So no, I mean, I, I they the idea was that you were going to tone your pelvic flora so you could be a better lover because that's what ancient um, empresses and concubines in in China did, which, of course, there's no evidence of that Mm -hmm. at all. Uh, And, you know, how is this unknown to Chinese scholars but known to an actress in Southern California? (laughs) Boy, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. So I think, um, you know, this idea, these things are very predatory. And almost everything on her site is predatory. I mean, they sell supplements, right? Mm -hmm. They sell a scammy flu supplement to protect you from getting influenza, which is, you know, um, not going to do that. They sell all kinds of things that are, you know, not much different from the other people in the wellness industrial complex. But what they're selling is hope, right? Isn't that, I mean, and and that to me is kind of the most insidious part of this. And I've talked about this on the radio show here before, but five years ago I had cancer and I went through uh, rounds and rounds of chemo, a year and a half of, of chemo. And I didn't talk about it publicly on my TV or radio show, but some people found out Mm -hmm. social media word spreads. People saw me at a chemo ward and I started getting notes and letters from people saying, oh, if you only eat yams, you you can avoid all that other stuff. And it enraged me because what they were selling me, they weren't trying to sell me anything. These people were probably, you know, working from a good place, Uh, but they were trying to give me hope in something that was bogus. You know, I think it's not hope. Personally, I don't think it is. I think it's a sense of control. Mm. I think it's this idea that that your medical life is out of control for whatever reason or you're living a life you don't want to live and you can control it by doing this. Right. You can control it. You know more than the doctors. You know your body. And you do and you don't. When I say to someone, you know your body, you know when you have a symptom. Mm-hmm. But that symptom doesn't tell you what's wrong with your body, right. right? So there's a difference. The body's not the greatest communicator. And, you know, so so these these wellness predators are telling you that, you know, that, oh, well, how could this hurt? How could this hurt? Well, first of all, some of these products can hurt. Many supplements are adulterated. But secondly, why should you waste your money on things? Mm-hmm. And the placebo effect is not real in the way that people think it is. It tends to be a very short-lived response that's not, like, super robust, you know? So it's not like, you know, you're your cancer is going to go away for three months for a placebo effect. It's not going to have any effect on that. And it's also, 
it's selling false hope because how predatory to say to somebody, well, but this might boost your immune system. Mm -hmm. It might help your cancer. What's the harm in that? Well, the harm is you've just been sold a lie. What if it has the opposite effect mm -hmm. on your immune system? It could. I mean, we know with supplements, for example, that you are more likely to live a, to die if you take supplements than if you don't. We do know this, yes. yeah. Oh, yes. It is, we know, and because this they're is unregulated, known. right? They're un and we no. don't know exactly what's in them. It's not even because of the junk that's in them. That's a whole separate thing. It's because of, you know, tasting, taking massive amounts of antioxidants probably feeds unhealthy cells better than it feeds healthy cells. It feeds probably going to feed cancer cells better. So you are more likely to end up with these diseases that are going to hurt you if you take supplements. So there's an increased all-cause mortality for people who take supplements. I mean, our bodies are not designed to take mega doses of vitamins. Mm -hmm. We pee the extra out. So basically, you're taking who knows what that dose could be for you. So yeah, so these things are not safe. You couldn't pay me enough to take a supplement. So no vitamins in your house? No, not at all. We get the most natural things to get your vitamins from your food. Yeah, yeah. You know, and Have there an are orange. some people who yeah. can't. So, for example, if you've had bariatric surgery, you're not absorbing well. And so you may need a higher dose to try to get more mm -hmm. absorption. Different situation. If you're a woman who wants to get pregnant, then you need extra folic acid. And it can be hard to get the amount of folic acid you need from a diet. So we recommend folic acid supplements. So there are very specific indications, but those have been studied, mm -hmm. right? This whole general taking supplements for your health, it's totally bogus. Okay. There are, uh, uh, other than the J-Day. <laughs> so, so we didn't get to Gwyneth, really. So uh, your, your family doesn't enjoy Gwyneth. Your kids boo her when they see yes, her on screen. They do. Uh, but there's a reason. You wrote about this. Yeah. The jade egg, and and uh, now you're not having her over for lunch anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, I, I write a lot about the, the, the John Con goop and how predatory it is. And, uh, you know, she had sort of thrown down the gauntlet a couple of times, like saying that, you know, if you want to come at her, you better bring your A game. Yeah, and I'm yeah. like, oh, sister, you have no <laughs> idea what my A game is. This only took my C game. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, so I, so we had a little tussle back and forth in, in the, the papers. And the latest thing is Goop doesn't understand why I write mean things about them because we seem so aligned in our purposes. I'm like, no, We really. just want women to feel better. That's what they're saying. Yeah, right? no, I, I just want women to have facts and you just want to sell product. There's a big difference. I mean, that's actually my number one rule. You can't get medical advice from anyone selling you product. What are some of the other absurd products? And there's a couple of things here. Uh, ozone getting blown into your vagina. Yeah, yeah. That's not a goop thing, but don't do yeah. that. That's very dangerous. There are people who do ozone therapy, and that could kill you. And Yeah, it's bad for your lungs. Why yeah. would it be uh, good for anything else? And what are some others? I mean, uh, they're, they're, we, we hear about them. Um, they're promoted. Well, you know, yeah. I mean, I think that um, one of the ones that... Uh, that I would just sort of circling back to what we said about supplements. I mean, many of them contain something called green tea leaf extract, mm. which is not the same as drinking your green tea. Uh, and that's associated with liver failure. It's, I mean, supplements are a leading cause of liver failure. So, you know, these, this idea that herbs are benign is really um, not true. I mean, another, another good one from Goop is the vaginal steaming, which is, you know, total crock of Mm -hmm. mugwort. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to help you at all. It could potentially hurt you. And it's based off the patriarchal trope that the uterus is dirty. So, you know, the, you know, women have been marginalized since the beginning of time, but this idea that you're, you're dirty when you bleed and you have to clean yourself. Mm -hmm. And vaginal steaming is offered as a way to cleanse your uterus of toxins. Now, obviously, I mean, if your uterus has toxins, how does an embryo implant there? 
right? I mean, it, it doesn't take biology. So, um, so, so cleaning your uterus of toxins is patriarchy. So Goop advertises that as feminism. So what they've done is they've taken patriarchy, wrapped it up with a pink bow, and called it empowerment. So uh, your book, the uh, Vagina Bible. Uh, is jam-packed with information. We've talked about a lot of it here, but we've just got a few minutes left. If there's one takeaway, if there's one thing that you would like people, women, to take away, people, men and women, to take away mm -hmm. from this book, what would it be? You know, I think that the, the biggest takeaway is that your vagina and vulva need very little maintenance. Um, you know, this is almost entirely a self-cleaning oven, the vagina especially. You know, the vulva on the outside, you can use a little bit of a cleanser, you don't need to use soap, um, but it's best when you, you know, you're not trying to aggressively clean it and prep it. And the other thing I would say is, you know, wear whatever underwear you like. One of these big <laughs> myths is that, you know, women should wear white cotton underwear to protect their vagina from infections. And I'm like, well, Men's parts are on the outside, and no one says they need to wear white cotton mm -hmm. underwear. If, if white cotton was good for genitals, shouldn't it be better for men? So that's just a purity myth. So wear whatever underwear is comfortable for you and that you like. If you like lace thongs, wear them. If you like white cotton underwear, wear them. Just wear what you like. What are the most common things that are asked to you by women who come in and and you look at them and say, I wish, you know, that you had been taught that in school. I wish we knew more and that you had been given more information. What are the most common myths? Well, the biggest one is people come in and they say that they have a vaginal itch and what they mean is they have a vulvar itch. Mm. So that's the hu that's a huge one. Right. And so that leads to a lot of medical mistakes because people are treating them for vaginal itches and no one has actually asked and it's the vulva. And they've been buying products for the vagina. So, so that's the biggest one um, that I wish if every single person knew that at the beginning, that would save a lot of problem. Mm -hmm. um, I would also, the other thing I would like women to know is, is that um, the yeast infection is not the most common cause of their symptoms. And certainly if they have a vulvar itch, it's almost never a yeast infection. So, but, but women are sort of told that almost everything is a yeast infection. So I think that it's really important for people to know, and they can get a lot of that information from my book. Uh, and the book is called The Vagina Bible, The Vulva and the Vagina, Separating the Myth from the Medicine. Um, I, I don't see it on the Goop website. I'm not sure that, that <laughs> Quineth is, uh, is, is behind this, but that should probably be a pretty good marker of success for you. I would be devastated <laughs> if Goop sold the book. I would be devastated. So I'm glad that they're not. I, um, yeah, I don't like to associate with predators, So, but that's okay. I'm going to bring down the wellness industrial complex. I have plans. I'm doing a pretty good job already. Yeah, one, uh, one blog post and podcast and book at a time. Exactly. Uh, Jen Gunter is uh, my guest. The Vagina Bible is the book. Uh, you can find it wherever uh, fine books are sold. Uh, my thanks to you, Jen. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. And my thanks to uh, Andre on the board. Most of all, my thanks to you for listening. And we'll talk to you again next week.